Welcome to the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ, located in the Lehigh Valley of Pennsylvania. I'm Pastor Mike Landsman, and these podcasts are taken from my weekly Sunday morning sermons. We pray that they will bless you, and we would love for you to come visit us and make our church home, hopefully, become your church home. Here's what we have for today. Thank you for the reading. Good morning, everybody. So... We're going to talk a little bit today based on the, the readings about encounter, particularly encounter with, with God. There's a lot of things in life that cause us to look away from, from something. Sometimes we may look away from the beggar at the traffic light and pretend we don't see them standing there with the sign asking for help. Sometimes we look away from a person who is really annoying us in the hope that if we don't look at them, maybe they'll leave us alone and go away. I never do that here, just so you know. And I'm sure none of you ever do either. Other times we look away from scary movies and we miss the good jump scare because we don't want to be frightened. But what happens when we encounter God? What happens when we as finite human beings encounter the infinite creator of everything that is? Would we hide? Would we try to run away? Would we try to escape? What would that mean for us? In the readings today, we see an encounter between Elijah and God and an encounter between the God-man Jesus Christ and a demoniac, a man possessed by a legion of demons. So in the Elijah story, we have to remember what had happened right before this, okay? So this is when, when I was in Sunday school, I loved this story, right, of how this, this one lone wild-looking prophet stood against an entire idolatrous system that Israel's King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, both figures of, of supreme wickedness in the Old Testament that they had put in place, that had led God's people away from the true worship of Yahweh to the worship of the Baals. And Ahab gathers the people of Israel and all of the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. And Elijah lets them have it, right? We know this story. We love the story, right? Well, once and for all, we're going to see whose God is the toughest, whose God is the best, whose God is actually real. And the prophets of Baal put the bull on the altar, and they pray, and they dance around. I think it even says they cut themselves, and nothing happens. And we love the story because Elijah is sitting there, and nothing is happening, and he's making fun of them. He's like, maybe he's in the bathroom. I didn't make that up. That's in the Bible. Maybe he's asleep. Who knows? Maybe he just doesn't want to answer. And he's teasing them, and nothing happens, right? And then Elijah, he's like, I'm going to one-up everybody. He's like, okay, nothing's happened. It's my turn. So he takes 12 stones, one for each of the tribes of Israel. He, he builds an altar. Then he takes the bull that's been given. He puts it on the altar, and you think, okay, Elijah, that's great. But he says, no, there's one more thing. And then he digs a trench. He has him dig a trench around the altar. And then they're like, okay, let's do it. And Elijah says, no, one more thing. And then they take giant jugs of water and they pour he has them pour water over the altar over the sacrifice there's so much water that the wood is soaked the the animal to be sacrificed is soaked all of the then there's water filling the trench and elijah steps back he probably tells everybody like back a little bit right and then he prays and he asks the Lord and the Lord responds immediately and he sends fire from heaven that not only burns up the, the animal that's on the altar, the bull, it consumes the bull, it consumes the wood, it consumes the stones and it licks up all of the water in the trench. There's nothing left there but like a smoking pit. Everything is consumed 
by the power and the fire of God. And then this is the part of the story I never heard growing up, right? Because he's not supposed to tell this to kids. But then afterwards, Elijah is like, all right, let's take these prophets down by the river and kills all 450 of them right there by the river. And then something happens, right? Well, you would expect, right, after something like this happens, the people of Israel saw it, you would think that they would say, okay, these false gods we've been serving, the Baals and Asherahs, uh, maybe we should stop worshiping them. What do you guys think? And, but no, they don't, right? They don't. They still serve the Baals, and it doesn't move them to repentance. It doesn't really even change anything for them. Even though there's this miraculous sign, the true God has answered by fire in an overwhelming way. It doesn't change anything for them. And if you're Elijah, after having this marvelous victory, you're like scratching your head, what is going on? That should have been a slam dunk. But the opposites occurred. Nothing's really happened. There was no en masse repentance, right? And then Elijah gets word from Jezebel and Ahab, we're coming to kill you for what you've just done. No revival, no mass repentance, no grassroots movements of pro-Yahweh worshipers, just crickets. So after this victory and vindication, he gets out of Dodge, and exhausted, he asks God to take his life after running for about a day or so in the wilderness. But he's miraculously provided for. He gets food, and it's enough to sustain him for a journey to the mountain of God. And we could take that one aspect of the story, but we have a lot to talk about, so we'll move on. He's in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights, and this should make us think of Moses, right? Moses is on the mountain of God for 40 days and 40 nights receiving the Torah. And it should make us think of Jesus in the wilderness. Uh, after 40 days and 40 nights, he's tempted by the devil. Elijah, after 40 days, arrives at Mount Horeb, the mountain of God, and God asks him, what are you doing here? And Elijah responds, I've worked hard for you. No one believes in you anymore. I'm the only one left serving you, and they're trying to kill me. God doesn't answer. Instead, God says, go stand by the entrance of the cave. But Elijah doesn't go stand by the entrance of a cave. He just sits inside. And then the following happens. And it says, the Lord passed by. Great and strong winds tore the mountain, broke them in pieces and rocks. The Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. The Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. When I read stuff like this, I figure that that would be enough for me. If I was in a cave and God told me to come out and I said, uh-uh, and then all of a sudden there's fire outside and wind and an earthquake, God saying, come outside, I would probably go outside. Like the fire may burn me alive and the wind might like, you know, carry me to Oz or something, but God's calling me. <laughs> but Elijah doesn't. He stays in the cave. And then finally, all of that goes away. And in the voice of a soft whisper, God says, Elijah, why are you here? And then once that happens, Elijah goes, and then he stands at the front of the cave after God speaks to him in the quiet voice. And thinking about this, Elijah has had these amazing experiences of God's power, and he's ex had this, uh, this miraculous intervention uh, from God in his ministry. He's, Elijah has raised the dead. And he's literally, like we just saw, called down fire from heaven. Actual fire from the actual heaven that consumes everything. But these miraculous signs don't move him. But what does move him? When God is present in the sound of stillness. And Elijah, he hides his face from God in the stillness. 
And I think this is important because in the still and quiet presence of God, he hides his face, right? Because the scriptures tell us no one can see God and live. And this should also make us think of he's, he knows he's encountering the holy, so he hides his face. And then when we think about Moses, when God appears to Moses through the burning bush, God says, what does God say to him? Take off your shoes. And you might think, what? Why would you take off your shoes? And God says, because where you're standing is holy. So Moses takes off his shoes. In the same way that Moses is encountering the holy, Elijah is encountering the holy. Because, well, then Elijah, he once again states what God asked him before. Why are you here? And he says, I'm the only one left. I've been very zealous for you. No one is with me. And God replies, you're not the only one. I have 7,000 people who have not yet bowed the knee. And then he begins to give him what his next steps are. God speaks to him. God assures him. And then God calls him, right? Tasks him and sends him back out. One commentator writing on this says, the weapons of Elijah's warfare, the instruments of religious progress, must be spiritual, not carnal, not in fire and in sword and in slaughter, but by the secret voice speaking to the conscience. What's going to cause the people of Israel to repent? It's not going to be these giant displays of power, but by displays of God's love and humility. And we see this ultimately realized in Jesus Christ, right? When Christ comes, he doesn't come as a conqueror, a king, he comes as a baby. Then when we look in the story in the Gospels, Jesus encounters the demoniac and the demons. This story was also one of my favorites as a little kid, and there's a lot we could look at in this. But Jesus and the disciples have just crossed over the Sea of Galilee to the Gerasenes. They have moved from the land where the Jews lived, right, to the place where the Gentiles lived. There's some back and forth on where this actually is located, but regardless of the exact location, it's, you're, we're in Gentile tor- territory here, and this is emphasized in the story by them including the pigs, the herd of pigs, which were unclean animals to the Jews, and they didn't keep them as flocks. So Jesus' ministry has largely at this point been in Jewish areas, but now he's moving beyond the people of God to those who are outside of the covenant. Right? And in the ancient world, it was believed that each kind of nation right, had its own sort of God, had its own deity, and that deity was in charge of that particular nation right, or that particular area. Right? So Israel's God was the true God, Yahweh. Right? And then in some countries, nations, they would have worshipped uh, uh, Marduk. Right? So Marduk would have been seen as the God of, of Babylon in particular. Right? And then you had... Like Tyre and Sidon and Phoenician, I think they, their primary deity was Baal, right? So they were worship the Baal. So Baal would be seen over that area, right? So what's happening is you would think, well, and what happened, what happened is if they were, if the nations would fight each other, right? We see this in the Old Testament. It was sort of like a thing is whose God is stronger? And whoever won in battle, they would have the stronger God. So we see Jesus moving out of the territory of the people of God to territory under control by something else. But we're going to see that that cannot stand before him at all. So, as soon as Jesus steps out of the boat with his disciples, a naked man bursts out of nowhere and confronts them. 
And we get some information about this man. He lives in the tombs, and he's severely demonized. He's unable to be controlled or bound by anyone. If they tie him up, he just bursts the bonds and runs away. And then he encounters Jesus, and Jesus asks his name. And the demons, not the man, they respond, legion. Now, a legion in these days was a contingent of Roman soldiers numbering about five to six thousand, five thousand to six thousand men. That was a legion, right? So when Jesus says to this, this man, what is your name? And the demons respond, legion. We're supposed to get the idea that there might not be an actual five to six thousand demons inside this man, but that he's being severely afflicted by a great number of evil spirits. A lot. And the demons beg, the evil spirits, they beg Jesus to not send them away to the abyss because they know they cannot resist him. And, and the abyss here in the text, this is the place where spirits are imprisoned. And they beg him not to send them there. They recognize who he is. They recognize his authority over them, and they're scared. And Jesus sends them into the pigs. And pigs go crazy and jump into the sea. And the herdsmen watch this. They freak out and they run back into the city. And all of the people come out of the city. And when they get to where Jesus is, the man who was possessed, who no chain could hold, no rope could hold him, nothing can control him. They know who he is. He's living right outside of the city in the graveyard. They know who he is. They've tried to control him. He's running around naked and screaming all the time, right? When they come to Jesus, what does it say that they see? They see Jesus standing there, and the man is seated. He's clothed, and it says he's in his right mind. He's clothed, and he's in his right mind. This scares them, and they ask Jesus to leave. Imagine that, right? A mighty act of God results in them being afraid. And we might ask ourselves why. And part of it could be economic. In the book of Acts, a couple weeks ago, we talked about the story about how St. Paul cast the, the spirit of divination out of the young slave girl, and it costs her owners money. It could be that. It could be that uh, they knew that the demonized man was out there. They were afraid of him, but they knew kind of if they left him alone, he would leave them alone. They knew who he was, and they could account for him, right? They knew what to expect from him. He was familiar, but they don't know what to expect from Jesus. Jesus does the undoable by delivering the undeliverable and controlling the uncontrollable. The commentator Democratic says, even when it is for good, power that can neither be calculated nor managed is frightening. Right? So if Jesus remains, what else is he going to do that's going to upend their lives? But the man who was delivered had a different point of view. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away. Right? So that phrase, be with him, is important because when we see Jesus calling the disciples, it says he called them so that they may be with him. This is the language of discipleship. This man asks Jesus to be his disciple. And Jesus says, I can't take you with me. But, right, but go to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And the man went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. 
So Jesus leaves this foreign area showing his power and might over the evil spirits that held humanity in bondage. His authority is not just over the Jews, but over all nations and all people. All will bow their knee to Jesus. The man who was delivered asks to be his disciple and follow him, and Jesus tells him to be the first evangelist. And the next time Jesus returns to that area in the Gospels, the people are much more responsive to him, and they're much more receptive to him. And like St. Paul wrote in Galatians that we heard read, there is neither Jew nor Greek. All are one in Christ Jesus. And we see this beginning to take some shape here in this text. And sometimes, brothers and sisters, when we encounter the divine, right, like this demonized man did, like these people who came out of the city did, and like what happened with Elijah and the people of Israel, people might not react the way you think they will. They may respond out of fear and reject, right? But they may respond like this man and ask to follow. So in the Elijah story, our lives might sometimes look like they're going great, but sometimes we hit a speed bump that throws everything off. For some of us, it might be depression or financial loss or illness. And when that happens, sometimes we retreat within ourselves and are unable to be coaxed out. We think that God doesn't know what he's doing, right? Or we might even question, why am I going through this problem when maybe even yesterday everything was awesome? I think like Elijah, this should drive us to the mountain to seek God. Even when we don't know what he's going to say or do. And God will minister to us in the quiet places of our hearts. It's it's up to us to make that space, to intentionally take the time to seek the Lord in prayer and expect that we will be answered, even if the answer isn't the answer we expect or even want. Right? Because think about it. Elijah says, I'm the only one left. No one's listening to me. What does God say? God says, go. <laughs> Keep doing what I told you to do. I don't, maybe Elijah didn't like that, right? He complains to God, no one's listening to me. Everybody's denying me. No one's worshiping you. And God's like, that's great. I want you to go. I want you to anoint this guy's king of Syria. You're going to find this guy. He's going to be the prophet who's eventually going to take your place. And I want you to go over here and anoint this guy as the king of Israel, right? Even though Elijah's afraid for his life, God doesn't say, there, there. It's okay. I promise nothing bad's ever going to happen to you. God just says, this is what you're going to do, and sends him out. And sends him out. He doesn't get the answer you might expect. But he does get some comfort, I think, in some direction from God. And when we encounter God, it's almost as if everything we hide ourselves in is stripped away. And we're left vulnerable in his presence. And this may make us, like Elijah, try to hide our face from God. But fortunately for us, God will not let us hide our faces for long. When we encounter him, we are changed and our God-given tasks are renewed. And we are given strength for the journey. Then we look at the story of Jesus and the demonized man. We see some parallels with the Elijah story. When the man confronts Jesus, note that Jesus doesn't make a huge show of casting the demons out, right? He doesn't switch to Elizabethan English or draw out the whole encounter. There's a guy on Christian TV usually later at night, and he pitches himself as an exorcist. And he calls people up, and he does crazy things like putting Bibles on their heads 
and crosses in their faces like they're vampires or something. And he has a, he has a demon test that you can take online. And in between the very low price of 200 to $600, you can have an exorcism over the phone, over Skype, uh, in person, if you go to one of his meetings, uh, or maybe by mail. This is the opposite to what Jesus is doing here, right? He doesn't turn it into a show or a charade. He casts out the demons with a word. Now, we might not be suffering, brothers and sisters, from a legion of evil spirits, but Jesus and his authority is still over and above all things, which means that whatever we suffer with that may lead us to sin, whenever we are tempted, whatever tries to lead us away, Christ has the power and the willingness to help us. Like the demonized man, we may need to cast ourselves on our knees before him, but he will respond and he will answer because he crossed over the sea to save us, right? All humanity has been enslaved to evil, and Jesus enters into our humanity in order to reconcile us to God. It's a beautiful picture of our salvation. It's a beautiful picture of our salvation, Jesus coming across the sea to a people, right? Jesus, the Son of God, right, takes on human flesh, enters into humanity to redeem humanity from those things that hold us in bondage, right? And when we encounter the divine, when we encounter God, things change. We can no longer stay the same. And we encounter God here, brothers and sisters, in worship. And we encounter God when we come before the Lord's table. This is why, for, for me, I think it's so important for us to have communion as often as we can. Because we encounter Christ at the table, at the altar. And he renews us, and he restores us, and he constantly is resending us out, filled with his grace and with his love. And so, brothers and sisters, let us then seek to follow him wherever he goes and to go wherever he sends us, to testify to the wonderful things that he's done for us. And many of us have stories of what Christ has done for, for you. And I'm sure if I called each and every, I won't do this, but I'm sure if I called each and every one of you up here, you would be able to tell me a story of how Christ has changed you, how your faith has changed you, how God has been with you. Even in situations that didn't turn out the way you thought they would, God is still with you. And those stories then, brothers and sisters, we can go and tell others what God has done for us in Christ. And so when we encounter the divine, we will leave changed and sent. And so to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ be all glory, together with the Father who is from everlasting and is all holy good and life-giving spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ. If these sermons have been a blessing to you, I'd ask that you would consider helping to meet a major need that we have. Our building is in current need of some necessary repairs, so we've set up a GoFundMe, gofundme.com slash SaveZionStone. And I ask that you would please consider donating there, or if you'd like, you could also mail us something directly. 
Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to contact me, you can reach me at malandsman at gmail.com. Or you can find me on the church's Facebook page, Zion Stone United Church of Christ, as well as our website. This podcast is available on iTunes as well as Spotify. Thank you so much again for listening. God bless you.